0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers based on their personal and or professional experience with grief and bereavement. Good day everyone and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon podcast. My name is Rami Shami and I'll be your host. A little background about our organization. We're located in Oakville, Ontario, Canada, but provide our services to the Greater Toronto Area. We offer facilitated grief peer support groups to help children, teens, and their families, however you define a family, through the grieving journey following a death in their family. Our groups are open ended and ongoing, which offers each family member an opportunity to participate in their own unique way. But before we begin this podcast, it's imperative. We share a land acknowledgement in honor of the land that we're living on today. My parents are refugees and immigrants, and they came here and settled here on this land and did not recognize the, the historical significance of the trauma, the genocide, and the harm that's been incurred by indigenous peoples who have been the keepers of this land for eons. In any case, the land that I am standing on today is a traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishnabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendap peoples. And it's now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty signed with the multiple Mississaugas and Chippewa bands. Today, I have a very special guest, and they're all special guests and all that, in that respect. But this fine individual, this fine gentleman, I had the pleasure of meeting, before the pandemic, in down in the in the U.S. and I, I remember seeing him for the very first time and thinking, "Wow, what an aura! What a what? Who is this person? I need to speak to him and be able to harness and share some knowledge together." And I'm excited to have him on the podcast today. He's gracefully and gratefully agreed to come and and be hosted on this podcast. Deacon Yervant Kuchikian graduated from Georgetown University with a Bachelor of Science in Foreign Service and obtained a Master of Arts in Religious Studies from St. Nurses Armenian Seminary and St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Center. He completed nine units of clinical pastoral education at Albany Medical Center, where he also worked for several years as an interfaith chaplain, specializing in behavioral health and palliative care chaplaincy. His academic research has focused on Armenian scripture commentaries, especially on the Book of Psalms and he currently serves as a spiritual director at St. Nurses as per-DM chaplain at Stamford Hospital. Welcome, Deacon.
1: Thank you so much, Rami. Thank you for having me this morning.
0: Oh, it's an absolute privilege. I'm, I'm very excited to speak to you about your experience as a deacon, as a chaplain, as an intergenerational son of immigrants, especially from the work that you do. And from being Armenian and the communities that you serve, and we're gonna we're gonna put a, a children's youth teen spin on it in terms of grief and loss. But let's let's really also expand it to include the family systems that you are engaged in when it comes to grief, trauma, loss, as it pertains as refugees, as immigrants, and those who are born and raised in in this country. And you are you are actually calling in from. The US. I'm
1: calling in from St. Nessus this morning here in Armonk, New York, in Westchester County.
0: Wonderful. So, my friend, I'm going to try really hard not to call you Habibi. Habibi is a very endearing term that we, we say in, in multiple languages, but especially in, uh, in Arabic, just to signify a warmth towards somebody that you are uh, affectionate with. So, let's, let's open this up. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you see, what you experience, anything you'd like to give us a... Um, a portal into your your work and your experiences as as a deacon, as it relates to the different domains of loss and grief.
1: Sure, thank you, Rami. There is so much we could talk about this morning. Uh, you know, each of us has such rich experiences as human individuals, and it's such a a privilege when we have the opportunity to enter into one's story, one's narrative and and to to drink from that that well. I have been a chaplain now going on 17, 18 years, and it's been an interesting overlap with my life as an individual. And I remember thinking, where did this journey for me begin? And it began in a village in Armenia when I was 16 years old. I was in a village for a couple months, and this was a village that had suffered great loss during the devastating earthquake in December 1988. And I was sitting down with a woman who just started pouring out her story of loss and grief, having lost her husband, having lost children in this earthquake. The village school, it was a two-story school, and it collapsed. This was during the school day. And so there was a noticeable absence during my time there of children from that age range. All of the children in the village had died during this earthquake. So there was extreme loss and grief that was very fresh at that time. And that really began my journey of having the opportunity to listen to somebody's story and to witness their stories of loss and grief. So that's, that's a a little bit of an introduction to where my, my story began with really starting to think intentionally and with attention to people's stories of loss and grief.
0: Thank you, Deacon. So from your perspective, especially in, in, In the Armenian culture, you know, in these podcasts, we've started them to engage in multiculturalism and diversity and what have you. Can you give us maybe a a higher bird's eye view in terms of how these experiences of loss, uh, especially as they're related to death and dying, are ritualized, ceremonied? supported or not supported within Armenian cultures. And I say call it cultures in plural, because I understand not all demographics and geographies of Armenian peoples practice their customs and their, and their, their cultures in, in, some, in the same way.
1: Thank you, Rami, I appreciate that, that distinction. Um, as, you, as you so well note, the Armenian community is a diverse community. In fact, it's, it's a plurality of communities worldwide. So we have Armenians from Iran. We have Armenians from Armenia, of course. We have Armenians throughout the Middle East, Armenians in the New World, in North America and South America, uh, as far flung as the Philippines and East Asia. And each of these communities has their own character, their own culture, with great overlap, of course. Perhaps the greatest way that we as Armenians commemorate and ritualize our experience of loss and grief is through a service that's called hokehankist, or rest for the soul. And this is a service that can be conducted at any time for any deceased member of a person's family or someone they hold dear. And it's a short service. It's maybe 15 minutes. It's usually held on a Sunday after the regular church services and it is very evocative for most armenians i would say this is something that many people who might not otherwise attend church they will be there for the hokehankist of their loved ones and in this service we we pray for rest to be granted to those who have fallen asleep as we call those who have have died and often this service is followed by a a little bit of a spiritual meal a hokejash, or meal for the spirit, meal, meal for the soul, as a way to gather and remember those being commemorated and to break bread together.
0: Thank you for that, Deacon. And, you know, that brings to mind, you know, something I've advocated very strongly for, it, and we hold in, uh, in high esteem at, uh, at Lighthouse for Grieving Children, and we practice it. And that's the, the perception, of the ideology, the practice, that we all have a personal culture, That you can't categorize groups of people, demographics of people, even peoples of various geographies into a, into one category. For example, are all Armenians, you know, are like this? And I love how you kind of um, brought an awareness to the different demographics according even to geography within Armenian people. Now I'm just going to expand on it a little bit because you talked about this practice, uh, when somebody has died. Now, how does that apply? To intergenerational Armenians, especially those that come and emigrate to North America, do they still practice that? Do they practice it a little bit different? Is there any tension between first, second, third generational Armenians who bring this these aspects of practice, and you know, and in, in intergenerational you know children and youth and teens and what have you may not want to? Do you see any of that happening within your communities and the people you support?
1: That's a really interesting question, Rami. How these traditions, how these um, rites and and rituals get translated into a new cultural setting, a new geography. As I think about this, one of the aspects that I think adds even more weight to this little service that we have, this Hokkeihan Kist, is the fact that because so many of us have been displaced from our ancestral lands, our ancestral homes, where there would have been an ongoing connection to those that have gone before us in visiting graves which is which historically has been a very important part of Armenian culture. There's a a long tradition of spending time with our ancestors in the graveyards, in the cemeteries, having picnics there, pouring wine over graves, continuing that those bonds that transcend generations. And so here we are removed from the graves of our ancestors, and that I think has added even more import to how we commemorate our ancestors during this service of Hokehankist. There are so many layers of responding to loss and grief intergenerationally in the Armenian community. As you know, and as many know, the Armenian community suffered great losses at the beginning of the 20th century with the carrying out of the Armenian genocide in the Ottoman Empire. And we are now grandchildren and great-grandchildren of that first generation that came through the genocide that witnessed great, unspeakable trauma. And this trauma is commemorated every year annually on April 24th. And traditionally, we hold a special meal for commemorating those who had died during the genocide. And this is called madah, and it's, a, it's a, an offering meal of, it's usually lamb or chicken and pilav, um, and the, the meat is blessed in a particular way before it's prepared and, and it's seasoned with blessed salt. And this meal is both an offering of thanksgiving for having come through that event, having come through that tragedy, as the the offspring of, of those who had experienced those events. And this tradition is carried out in most Armenian communities throughout the world as a way to commemorate that particularly great loss among the Armenian community. As you well know, intergenerational trauma, we're only just beginning to look at the effects of that and how it affects how trauma in one generation ripples and affects the generations that come after. And we're seeing this in the work around epigenetics and how even our our genes are altered by trauma. And then those altered genes are passed down through generations. So apart from the psychological after effects of trauma that get passed down, there's even a physical effect, as you know, uh, of trauma that gets passed down through generations. And as you so well noted, each experience is so individual So there is, while many people may have parallel experiences, to suggest that I know what somebody's experience is because I went through something similar, of course, is false, because experience is so individualized. And so there may be commonalities, but it's so important to look at each individual's experience with fresh and new eyes and, and with curiosity. And I think this is where cultural humility comes in versus cultural competency where cultural competency can give us the false sense of comfort that, Oh, I know what I'm seeing here. I know how to respond to this rather than cultural humility that, that says, tell me about your experience rather than assuming I know what your experience is.
0: Absolutely. Deacon. And if we frame it from, in the context of intergenerational trauma, passed down through our genes, then how, do, how can we categorize people in a competence approach when they've experienced a death-related loss or loss in general and assume that they will not have their own individual unique practices of their customs and religions and, and spirituality and culture as we categorize those, so it's it's very individual, even from a traumatizing exp- experience. Would you agree? I mean, that's what I'm hearing you say in that regard, and that's why the culturally humble approach in looking at an individual's experience of their personal culture, of their the possibility and probability of traumatization, and their death related loss and their grief, is extremely
1: unique. Absolutely, I, w- I would agree completely, and I think this is one of the one of the riches of a traumatic history, if you will. Um, And it's it's perhaps jarring to think about their being, riches about their being value from such an experience. I think if we have the opportunity to witness various individuals' response to trauma, it can offer us valuable ways to interpret trauma and to think about how we might intentionally respond to our own experiences of trauma. There are, of course, many negative responses to trauma, and we we see how those play out. But there are also really skillful responses to trauma. And there is no one size fits all, of course. But there are opportunities to look at how has an individual met their trauma, walked through their trauma, and come through it stronger, resilient, all of these things that we are starting to look at now, you know, how do we build resiliency? How do we maintain resiliency in the face of trauma? So I think the the rich diversity of experience and response to trauma is a great starting place to think about how can we ourselves respond to trauma and how can we companion others who have experienced trauma, whether their own or passed down to them.
0: So Deacon given that and given the people that you support, especially specifically with the Armenian community, what have you seen or how do you recognize? And I think this is something that we're becoming more aware of in grief support in our domain of service. How do you recognize and support or even acknowledge uh, someone who would be intergenerational, born and raised in the US? However, have had parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents who have experienced genocide, war, massacres and that level of, or that capacity of traumatization. But they themselves haven't really experienced trauma or traumatization, but they've had a loss. And you suspect, given the historical significance of these experiences of Armenians of generations past, that that trauma has been passed, passed down or inherited genetically. Do you see it manifesting in the way they express themselves? Do you see it in some way expressing, especially at times of loss, right? That's usually often times when these experiences of traumatization surface, right? And yet the individual gets confused because they haven't really experienced that depth of traumatization, but as a result of it being in their genes, it's somehow expressing itself through their personal loss now. Can you comment on that? Can you speak to that?
1: That is a that is a really rich question rami and I'd like to respond to it at least in part i think there's there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the first thing I would say is when I come upon somebody who's having their own experience of loss right now, I like to come to them in a completely new way, so with new eyes bringing to the experience, my past experience with individuals who've experienced loss, but really looking at this as a new experience. Again, so approaching it with curiosity and and walking with them. And I think adding that layer of inherited trauma, if one approaches a situation like this with with curiosity and with skill, it's not even necessary that one knows about that history. But I think when we do, if I compare experiences of loss with say first generation genocide survivors versus their children or grandchildren, there was often in my experience and again of course every experience is individual, there was often an experience among that first generation of loss of accepting the loss and saying, well, this is this is how it is. There wasn't as much of a questioning of why why has this happened? Why would this happen to my loved one? he or she was a good person and i I experienced that much more with second third generation offspring. There's a very different sort of point of view or or point of experience that seems to question why these things happen versus an acceptance um in previous generations, and I wonder if that's because so much happened in in those survivors' experiences that was beyond their control, that there's a sense of going with the flow, acknowledging what's happening and acknowledging what one has power over and does not have power over. And of course, none of us has power over mortality. Uh, We have power over the choices we make that may extend our mortal lives, but at the end of the day... We don't have power over over our mortality. We don't have power over death. And I think that approach of those who had experienced great loss during the genocide offers us some lessons in terms of how we can meet our experiences of loss, how we can meet our experiences of death, and recognizing what is within our control, what is outside our control, and therefore where do we want to put our attention and intention when experiencing loss ourselves?
0: Thank you, Deacon. So what I'm hearing is that you have these generations who've experienced loss and managed it or you know, however they engaged it in particular ways that, that didn't necessarily involve the support that or the inquiry or the, the, the processing we have you know, acknowledged and, and are practicing today. grief support. And then you have a generation that's born and raised here or come here at an early age that has possibly learned how to navigate grief a little differently. How do you see those two worlds intersecting within family systems?
1: I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, in addition to all of these aspects that we've highlighted, there's also a very different approach to death and dying in the Western world than there is in in the Near East, Middle East, where at least where my family originates, and in the Republic of Armenia, where death is much more recognized as a part of life, as a part of daily life. And so it is not sanitized, it is not hidden the way it often is, at least in, in my experience here in North America. We've taken for the most part, the experience of the wake out of the home and put it into a funeral home. Often there's no viewing of the remains of the person who has died. We think we're protecting children by not bringing them to funerals or by not including them in these public rites of of mourning, of commemoration. And I think in the long run, that has been detrimental to how people process loss. When it's turned into this non-ordinary experience, when it's turned into something outside of the realm of daily life or regular life, there's a disconnect that occurs. And and I think it, it spills over into how we then process our experiences of death around us. It's a very different experience to mourn loved one in your home, in their bed that they died in, bathing the body at home, having the family bathe the body before being placed in the casket, where now these last pieces of care for an individual have been turned over to funeral homes who do a beautiful job. I mean, they, they do a beautiful work of caring for the deceased and the deceased's Family and loved ones who are seeking to memorialize their their loved one, but I think that aspect of how death has been separated spills over into all of our experiences of how we process then that experience.
0: I love how you said that, Deacon. These last moments of care, you know, it's it's so interesting. I resonate a lot with what you're saying because uh, my mother is from Lebanon. And she is always up in arms. If I ever even suggest that I take my daughter or our daughter, Zemra, to a funeral, children shouldn't see that. Children shouldn't see that. And that's, that's actually quite common in Lebanese communities is that they shouldn't see death and dying, or at least in the communities that I've been engaged in and I've heard from. And I, and I appreciate how you said that death has been taken, death and dying and has been taken out of the home and been surrendered to. You know, organizations such as funeral homes and what have you. It's almost been disenfranchised from, uh, from the experience and from the home within the communities you support, especially from Armenian descent. Are you seeing any kind of not a necessarily maybe a discourse or a disconnect between different generations of how they would want to experience and navigate a funeral, a death? To clarify, just, you know, the parents and grandparents want it like this. The children are not in the same, you know, on the same wavelength in terms of how they want to experience it or what they want to do. Do you see that? Do you experience that?
1: This is a question I haven't thought about very reflectively until now. So I appreciate the question, Rami. I think in greater society, what I've witnessed is there has been a gradual transition in terms of how funeral services take place. Uh, I would say up until recently, most funeral services would take place in a house of worship. And as society changes, as mores change, I've noticed much more of a transition to having funeral services carried out in funeral homes. They tend to be more secular, less religion-based or faith-based. This has not... Been the experience in in my experience at least in the Armenian community at least not yet where for the most part Armenians still will have their funerals in the church have the wakes performed either in the funeral home with a priest or in the church itself as well so I think you know I think what's happening in greater society will probably happen more slowly in the Armenian community but I think it's not unlikely that we would end up in that direction with having um less religious based funerals and more um secular based funerals going forward so people in younger generations i'm not sure what they would choose for themselves i think at at this time they're they're honoring what they what their parents or grandparents would want for their own funerals in terms of having a church funeral
0: and can i ask you deacon why is it happening more slowly in Armenian communities?
1: That is a good question, Rami. I I don't have the answer. In my experience, these trends that we witness in greater society seem to take place a little bit more slowly in the Armenian community, whether it's first generation or second, third generation offspring of immigrants to Canada and the U.S., Uh, I think change happens in general, change happens more slowly um, in the Armenian community. If you look historically over centuries, uh, we're not quick to change. We may be quick to embrace innovation, but we're not quick to change how we do things. And I, I would say there's an overlap right now of what I would call traditional culture and then modern culture. I think especially for a diasporan people, a people who has lived outside of their traditional homeland. And especially for most of the 20th century, there was no independent homeland. And so there was a, in my opinion, an ossification of culture in many ways, where there was a a deep need and desire to preserve what was. And as a result, Armenians coming from the Republic of Armenia to Canada or the U.S., will encounter traditions that have long been abandoned in Armenia, where there's been an ongoing, you know, Armenia, the republic has been modernized. It's been a country, it was part of the Soviet Union, and then an independent country since 1991. And so there wasn't the same urgency to preserve every aspect of culture, because they were living, they were a living society. And in the diaspora, there was this need to preserve what was. And so I think that may be part of why trends from outside the Armenian community that we witness are slower to occur within the Armenian community.
0: Uh, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I resonate a lot with that, Deacon, uh, because my father was a minister of our religion, the Druze religion here in, in Toronto, in Canada. And he was always astounded how, and I saw this for my for myself, how much we clung to ritual and ceremony here in Canada, trying not to, quote unquote, lose it, when back in Lebanon and Israel long, long ago abandoned it and considered themselves modernized and found us, quote unquote, and they would say this in Arabic, that we were backwards because we were holding on to those traditions and those customs. And I wonder, Deacon, what is that? Is it the fact that, and, and that's what I thought I heard from you in terms of, you know, our Republic of Armenia and what have you. Is it that the process of immigration or coming as refugees to North America exacerbated a sense of loss? And so we hung on and tried to preserve, or as you said, I love the word ossificate, that which was a connection to our countries of origin, or is it, it protective? to contain and preserve an aspect or even protect an aspect of our identity in a land that in in many respects was is foreign to us, but also there's a lot of discrimination, racism, and, and what have you. Where do you see that falls, Deacon?
1: That's a really good question. And I think an anthropologist would be so much better equipped to answer it than I am, but I, I will take a, a stab at it. I think it, it is not so much the experience of immigration but the causes of that immigration that may be at the root of why we see what we see. If we look at Armenians at the beginning of the 20th century, they've been uprooted from the cities and villages that they've inhabited for thousands of years. And it's a traumatic experience. And so they're pulled away from from the land. They're pulled away from the culture they know. And that culture has all but ceased to exist on those ancestral lands. And in exile, I think there is a deep desire to cling to what was, to cling to what was. And so here we are three, four generations later, and if if one Armenian meets another Armenian one of the first questions they ask is, where are you from? And they don't mean, where were you born in the U.S., but where did your, what city, what village did your ancestors come from? And these are cities and villages that ostensibly no member of this, of this individual's family has lived in for generations now. I look at my own family. My grandfather came from a city called Tab, and he was very proud of that. And nobody in my family after him has visited that city this is almost this is over a hundred years now that he left that city and and still that is how people in my family would identify they would connect with this place that they don't even know so I think there's this when a when a person is exiled, when a family or a, a people is exiled, there is great longing for what was lost and we can see this even going back to looking in scripture and the experience of the Jewish people in exile in Babylon and how they longed for for their homes in Israel. Or looking at the Israelite people after they left Egypt and longing for what they had in Egypt, even though that was not their original home. There's this longing when we are ripped away from something. And uh, it, it is such a different experience, of course, when we move towards a place, when we choose to move to a place versus when we are thrown out of somewhere and how we respond differently.
0: And that being said, Deacon, how do you feel that influences the experience of loss here in family systems, in children of you know, multiple generations of Armenians who have come here? How do you think that influences the experience of loss, especially when it comes to death?
1: That's a really good question, Rami. I think one of the ways I've witnessed that experience is with the loss of each generation, especially, there is a heightened desire or need to preserve not just the memory of that generation, but of what they held. So preserving the identity that is being passed on. And and I think, again, it's so important to recognize that every individual's experience every family's experience is different so i've witnessed this i've also witnessed the difficulty of trying to preserve that of of holding a history a family history that is so full of pain and loss that sometimes there's a a bit of a disconnect and people choose to abandon that history or not to preserve that history or not to pass on that history because it is so painful There were many examples in that generation of genocide survivors who did not share their experiences with their children, who did not speak about what they had gone through. And so there's a lot of mystery for many people today, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren trying to piece together what their family's experience was. And I think it's connected to what we were speaking about earlier, where there's this desire to protect children from the experience of a funeral In the same way, there's a desire to protect children from unspeakable trauma that a a person experienced. But this, in my opinion, this desire to protect children, grandchildren from what was, is robbing them of their heritage, is robbing them of their their inheritance. Because we, we inherit so much more than just the pain of trauma. And I think it's important to remember that that we also inherit the resiliency that trauma can build. We inherit the clarity, the focus, the valuing of what is truly important versus what is not through these experiences of of trauma and inheriting those experiences. So I, I think it's so important to recognize the multifaceted
0: inheritance
1: of trauma and not just recognizing the pain that is passed down.
0: Couldn't agree more, Deacon. I couldn't agree more. But I've also heard oftentimes, maybe I shouldn't say oftentimes, but sometimes these historical experiences of trauma and death and loss carry with them shame. And sometimes I've heard that to not talk about the experience of loss and grief from those situations is to not talk about the shame
1: absolutely yes that's a that's a really valuable observation. I know in the Armenian experience, for many who were among the generation of survivors, their experiences during the genocide were for them very shameful and this is one of the reasons that that people didn't talk about their experiences um, There was a desire to forget um, or at least forget collectively, rather than we can't forget our own experiences, but to not perpetuate those experiences that were so full of shame. And you know, I think it's important to to recognize that, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century Armenian culture within the Ottoman Empire was, there was a lot of shame-based uh, aspects to it. And, you know, I think we see elements of this in, in even modern day Middle Eastern culture where shame is 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 very shameful i think it's a very different experience than in the west where there's much more of an of an individual based society and the culture of shame has has largely i in my opinion been abandoned but in the east it's it has not been so and so one preserved one's family's honor one preserved one's own honor as it was understood in those days. And so there was, there was a lot of of shame attached to experiences one had in, in the genocide, particularly around the violation of women, for instance, or the violation of children and how those experiences at that time were largely recognized as the victims would take the blame for these experiences in many ways. And so Uh, there was great shame attached to what had been experienced.
0: If that's the way it was managed and dealt with, with this lack of expressiveness or communication or sharing by those generations of loss, of grief, does that not model it for current generations that are born, raised, or settled here in North America?
1: That's a great question. And in my experience, there was... shift that took place as that generation of survivors started dying where it was recognized collectively in the community that if we do not share our experiences if we do not preserve what our experience was it will be lost and so there was in particularly in the 1980s there were great efforts made to record and preserve as many accounts personal accounts of what had taken place as possible, and I think this began a, a process of reflection within the community, a, a process of getting to know one's family stories around the genocide. so I think if that had not taken place, what you had said would be true it would have it would have been a model that was perpetuated, but I think as a result of that movement to preserve these stories, to preserve these accounts of what had taken place, there was a shift. And that shame that had been attached by survivors in the, the beginning of their post-trauma experience, that was abandoned largely to a place of, this was my experience and it's important for you, my children, my grandchildren, to know what we have come through and to know what brought you to where you are today.
0: I hear you. I hear you, Deacon. And that brings forth uh, something I've heard either from you or from others within the field of supportive care. And this is almost a quote-unquote. Managing grief is a 21st century luxury. Can you comment on that?
1: (laughs) Yes. You know, I think that rings so true. You know, if we look at that first generation of genocide survivors – um, they were not offered assistance. You know, they, they're they thrown out of their homes. They've marched through the desert. Many of them are ending up, you know, in, in places where they don't know the language. They don't know um, how to move forward. Some of them came to the U.S. Some of them, as you know, ended up in Syria and Lebanon. So these survivors, many of them also being children with no parents. So they were not in a position to sit back and reflect and have uh, professional assistance in processing their experiences of um, trauma, of grief, of loss. Many of these people lost their entire families, 20, 30, 40 members of a family, and they were the sole survivor. And they have to figure out how they're, you know, how are they going to put food on the table today? Or um, how are they going to find a A roof over their heads so they they did not have the luxury that we have today and one could even say perhaps that you know if if we consider it not a luxury but a a basic right they didn't have that right Um, which for us is it's a luxury in that we have the, the possibility to process our experiences of trauma with professionals that we have space to to reflect on our experiences Many of us do not have to worry about where our next meal is coming from or how we're going to uh, make it from day to day. And and so there is privilege that comes with that, that we have the the ability to, to do some of this work that previous generations didn't have the, the possibility of. The field of trauma work and research, of course, is is very new in terms of the human experience. It's only after World War One, I, I would say, and and beyond that, we even started addressing these the effects of trauma and what happens to a person that goes through this.
0: Now that all being said, Deacon, I, I, we've come to recognize, especially a lighthouse for grieving children, but in the capacity and service of grief support across the sector, just because it's there doesn't mean people know about it or access it. And I'm talking about support grief, specifically grief support. And given that the possibility of grandparents or great grandparents modeling and navigating and processing grief in a particular unique way, and then modeling it for our parents. And then those parents have children here in North America that are possibly learning how to navigate and process grief by modeling their parents or their communities. How do we work with that? Or what are your thoughts on that because one thing we, we've we recognized, I mean, part of the reason and intentionality with these podcasts is to bring in awareness that just because the service is there, doesn't people mean these generations or these demographics of people know about it or even access it or want to access it or feel safe and comfortable in accessing it. Because you're right, a lot of supports, especially specifically grief support is, is secular and doesn't take into account these historical signi- uh, significances that we spoke about today such as genocide and war and immigration and what have you. So what are your thoughts on that
1: piece? I would start by saying I think the first thing that is so important to have in mind is that every generation has met these experiences as well as they can to the best of their ability and with what they have available to them. I think it's so important to acknowledge that what a generation a hundred years ago did in response to trauma. It's going to be very different than what we do, perhaps, but that they were doing the best they could with what they had, and that doesn't mean that we can't do the same thing or that we can't respond to the best of our ability in a different way. So I think it's important to keep in mind that you know when speaking as an Armenian, how our grandparents handled their trauma. Doesn't mean that I have to handle it the same way. I can take from what they've modeled and I can take what is good from that or what is helpful from that for me. And I can also avail myself of other resources. We have so many different resources available, um, so many different human resources available to companion us through our experiences of grief and trauma. And as you said, just because they exist doesn't mean that we take advantage of them. doesn't mean that we avail ourselves of them. And I think it it's really up to the individual to decide, do I want to do this work? It's work. It's not easy. If it were easy, we'd all be doing it. Um, and we're not always in a place to take on that kind of work. But for those who who are willing to to do that deep work, it behooves them to seek out what is what is available. And for those of us that are in this field to make known what is available. It doesn't mean that we're putting it on anybody, but at least allowing people to know what is available so that if and when they decide, yes, I want to I want to embark on this healing journey, they know what's available there for them to take advantage of.
0: Ah, oh, thank you for that. Uh thank you for that, Deacon. Do you have any uh, stories or experiences of people you support within the Armenian communities that can bring to life some of what we're speaking about today?
1: Sure. Thank you, Rami. I think it's really important to remember and recognize that even today, experience is so varied. So if I look at, if, if I present to you an Armenian community here in North America, I'll take um It could be any Armenian community here in North America, where you have likely individuals who are third or fourth generation Canadian, Armenian, or American Armenian. You have Armenians who immigrated in the 1970s during the war in Lebanon. You have Armenians who immigrated from Armenia after independence in 1991. The communities are so diverse. And within this experience, you also have diverse experiences of trauma, of loss, of responding to those. So you you have the baseline of most community members will have had some inherited experience of loss from the genocide, but then you add more recent losses in, in newer generations leaving Lebanon during a civil war, leaving Iran after the revolution in the 1970s, leaving Egypt after the revolution. There are all these experiences of, of other loss and coming to North America as refugees for various experiences. And so you have communities made up of people who are carrying trauma from 100 years ago, trauma from 40 years ago, trauma from yesterday families who have lost family members and are doing the best they can to move forward, who've lost their homes, who've lost their communities, and are now here rebuilding community with people that may or may not understand their experience. You know. So again, even though two people may be Armenian, they may have very different experiences of, of what that means in terms of grief and loss that they're experiencing.
0: On that point right there, Deacon, What do you feel is the reasoning behind they would experience it differently?
1: I think just as you and I as individuals might experience a parallel experience of loss in very different ways, the same holds true for members of the Armenian community or members of the the human community at large. I'm reminded about how difficult the loss of a child is and the effects it can have on the parents where you have two parents that are both deeply grieving the loss of a child, but that grief is expressed in very different ways. And when it is expressed in very different ways, it can be very difficult for one or both of the parents to see my partner is experiencing this loss in a very different way. They're not as Outward about their experience, therefore, they're not grieving the experience the way I am. They're not grieving uh, the death of our child in the same way. And it can create real difficulty in partner relationship like that. And sadly, the, as we know, the, the result is that many marriages and partnerships do not survive the loss of a child, largely because of this very different experience and expression of grief after losing a child.
0: And we say that with a bit of sensitivity, that it's not a necessity that it will dissolve the marriage or the partnership, but your experiences have brought that forth, that that becomes a very challenging time. Is that right, Deacon?
1: Absolutely. And I certainly am not suggesting it's it's the majority of experiences, but just that this is, again, it highlights how individual the experience of death and loss and grief can be. And some of the difficulties that, that can arise, not necessarily that they will, but there are, of course, many couples that are able to support each other beautifully through through these experiences. But just recalling how, how individual the experience can be. And because it's so individual, how jarring it can be, whether it's whether it's a couple or whether it's within a family system, how jarring it can be for an individual to be going through their experience of... Um, processing a death and seeing other members of their family or seeing other friends processing it at least outwardly very differently, it, it can it can leave one feeling well either why is this person not experiencing it the way I am or am I am I strange for experiencing it the way I am rather than us saying, you know what, we we as human beings, we process so many things differently. Why would grief be any different than our very varied experiences of other things in life?
0: Yeah, well said. I couldn't agree more, Deacon. And if you take, if you factor in, you know, let's say a partnership or a marriage, each has a lineage that can be very unique and different. Some have ancestors that have experienced traumatization, and some have not. And so their experiences of loss are very different on a genetic level. And that lends itself to the personalized expression of grief and loss, which uh, I would like to say, again, is a very culturally humble approach, a very person-centered approach. But that also brings something to mind, Deacon. And I, I so appreciate your, your discussion, your insights today. They've been so incredibly rich. And it brings this to mind. What about interfaith? or maybe not interfaith, but intercultural, interfaith, inter-partnerships and marriages where people come from very different backgrounds and communities. What are your experiences as such, especially as it relates, my apologies, especially as it relates to grief and loss and family systems?
1: That's a that's a really rich question, Rami. I think the reality for almost every community in North America that... Um, has some sort of unique identity whether it's ethnic or religious or otherwise the reality we live in is inter as you put it intermarriage or interrelations uh, it's a reality that every community i think is facing and, and when it comes to death and loss i think there there's not one answer again you know, we talk about how individual everybody's experiences. I think there are two main possibilities. However, one is misunderstanding or not understanding, not being able. When you have a an inter marriage, for example, an interfaith marriage, intercultural marriage, it's very easy for perhaps one party or one side of the family not to understand the process of the other side of the family. And I think by the same token, you know what brought two individuals together from two different backgrounds offers the basis for fostering understanding. And it can be a very rich experience to have two individuals from different cultures who are informed by one another's cultural experiences. To look at their own experience. So, if we're looking at, at the experience of death for one member to to approach that experience with some curiosity in terms of how their their spouse or partner's culture would approach death, and it can be a very rich experience to have that, to have a different perspective on on how we we do these things. There's a a school of thought called comparative theology, which is very different than comparative religion. And comparative theology takes as its base that within every religion, every tradition, there is truth. There is undeniable truth that informs that tradition. And so it encourages learning about another tradition than one's own in order to then have a better understanding of one's own tradition. And I think that has applications here for what we're talking about when when we talk about an, an interfaith or intercultural relationship and how that can really make the experience of processing death or loss very rich, fuller, with a greater understanding of ways to do this, ways to walk through this with each other.
0: Beautifully articulated, Deacon. I wanted to revisit something before the end of the podcast is how you characterize, since we're talking about interrelational marriages and partnerships and what have you, how you characterize and what happens and what's the process of this soul rest. I mean, I'm so intrigued. I don't want to focus the entire podcast on it, but I could have. Can you tell us more about soul rest?
1: Sure. Thank you for the question, Rami. So soul rest, it's it's a way for those who remain living to both remember those who have died and also to offer something for those who have died. So offering these prayers that are for the the wellness of those who have died to somehow influence their eternal state in a positive way. Uh, There's a lot of mystery around us. None of us have, I shouldn't say none of us, most of us have, have not experienced death and come back to speak about it. So there's, of course, great mystery about what happens next. And in this service of soul rest of Hokehankis, there's trust that what we offer on behalf of the person who has died somehow beneficially has an impact and effect on their eternal state for the better, and any of us who have lost somebody that is dear to us to have an opportunity to connect with our loved one with someone that we hold very very dear, and to remain connected and to offer something on their behalf, it can be such a blessing to to have that connection and to Um, to touch the lives of those that have gone before us and to remain connected throughout the generations. Often these services are from multiple members of a family. So it's really, it's about those ancestors who have gone before us, remaining deeply tied to we who are here, still inheriting what they have left us and I believe in in some ways undoing some of what has happened, being able to undo or heal traumas of those that have gone before us.
0: Beautiful, brother. I mean, I should say deacon, brother, but beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, deacon. The blessing is actually having you on this podcast to share your wisdom, your insights, and your thoughts. Anything else you'd like to Share with the world. I mean, we're very fortunate that this podcast, today's technology, podcasts are all over the world. So, anything else you'd like our listeners to know?
1: First, I'd just like to express my thanks for this invitation, Rami, to to be with you, to spend this time together, and to have an opportunity to to talk about all of these rich topics. Yes. So, I, I would just like to bring to everybody's attention: people may or may not realize, but April is a very significant month for Armenians. April 24th is the day when, in 1915, the Armenian intelligentsia in Constantinople was rounded up. All of the community leaders were rounded up, and most of them were never seen again. And this began the Armenian genocide that took place over the next few years, wiping out most of the Armenian population in the Ottoman Empire. So it's it's particularly poignant that we're having this conversation in this month of, of remembrance and commemorating the Armenian genocide. I think if there is one thing I'd like to share with with our audience today it's when we experience death. It is such a unique experience each and every time one of us experiences the death of someone that we hold dear. And to be assured that what our experience is is all that it needs to be. There isn't one way of doing it. There isn't two ways of doing it. However we do it, however we experience that, however we choose to move through it, it's all good. And to be open to the possibility that there are individuals that can walk with us on our journey of of grief. There are individuals that can hold space for us to feel what we're feeling, to walk through our emotions, to create a space that just holds us, acknowledges and witnesses our loss. I think one of the most healing things there is for for experiencing loss is the power of witness and witnessing loss, where I can sit with you in your loss, and it's not my loss, but I'm witnessing what you have experienced, and being present to that is one of the most healing things in the world.
0: For sure, Deacon. It's the bearing witness, it's the acknowledgement, it's the being heard, it's being companioned. And I, I couldn't agree more, more with you. With the measures of diversity that are seeking grief support is, is incredible. And, and to not ensure, but to work with that inclusivity to access supports, that approach that you're speaking to is imperative. Thank you, Deacon. Thank you for everything that you shared today. So articulate, so wise so such a habibi (laughs) and (laughs) and i I hope i say this correctly pokéhon kissed yes what a beautiful i love the way you say it in armenian i just what a beautiful expression and practice and, and ritual thank you again deacon this has been the lighthouse beacon podcast for more information about our services please visit our website www lighthousegriefsupport.org. We're also on social media channels such as Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Folks, please stay safe out there. My name is Rami Shami. Take care.